How much thought have you given to what life on the other side of COVID-19 will look like? Maybe you've thought about it a lot. Maybe you've thought about it a little. Maybe you haven't even thought about it at all. A friend of mine um, called in on her way home a few weeks before the lockdown and she was telling me about how much this pandemic will completely change the world as we know it. And I agreed along with her and nodded and smiled as you do, but in my mind I was thinking, will it really? As I said, this was a few weeks before the lockdown and now here we are. Life right now is just a shadow of what it usually is. And sure, things are set to come to life in the next week or so, but beyond that, things still remain uncertain. And you know, during this lockdown, there has been a few things that I have become accustomed to, like extra pyjama hours and savings on petrol, and I'm going to miss these things, I will. But as our lives and places begin opening up a a bit more. There's also so many things I look forward to, like being able to get out and about a bit more, seeing family and friends in the flesh, not just online. And I mean, having takeaways every now and again will also be quite nice. Yeah, I have realized that all of my thinking, all of my expectations for life beyond lockdown are based and rooted deeply in what I know life to be like before lockdown. I haven't been very creative or imaginative with the way that I've thought about this and I'm just kind of thinking of the things that I already know and that I'm already comfortable with. And while a lot of our day-to-day -day stuff will probably remain the same, we'll go back to work, schools will open up again and kids will go back to school, it's what's under the surface that is going to have changed and affected us the most. Because what's going to happen to the fear? to the panic, to the anxiety that people have felt in this time? What is going to happen with the employment and financial and health security that before might have been taken for granted? And as we've emerged a little bit more from our lockdown hibernation, I found myself going back to that conversation with my friend. Our world has changed and it is continuing to change. I mean, we might be moving to level three on Tuesday, but this thing is far from over. In fact, we're probably still right near the beginning of it. So what will life look like? Both our inner lives and our outer lives. What will they look like post COVID-19? Some chaps who knew the struggle of re-establishing and restarting were Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we find these stories in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. After Israel's years of exile in Babylon, the new king of Persia, Cyrus, allows the Israelites to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. He encourages them. He even gives them his blessing and resources to make it happen. But if they thought that their homecoming was going to be marvellous and majestic, well, the Israelites had another thing coming because they face strong opposition along the way as they seek to rebuild. But rather than me telling you the story in just boring words, I thought, why don't we involve something else so you get to see the story play out in words and fun pictures. So we're going to watch a video now from The Bible Project. 
which tells us the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all of the nations to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. 
And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, Obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? 
Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So that is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah summed up. If you want to read the story in full, which could be a good idea as we're going to look through this story over the next few weeks, you'll find Ezra and Nehemiah tucked into the Old Testament after one and two crocodiles, one and two chronicles, and before the book of Esther. And if you want to watch more cool, interactive and fun videos like the one that we have just watched, then you can find them online at the Bible Project website. But I'll also put the details below in the comments for you so you can easily find it. But let's just pray as we begin. Father God, we thank you so much that we can continue together like this online. We thank you for the time set aside amongst families all over the place every Sunday to come together as an online congregation to worship you and hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would open our hearts and our minds to start considering what life on the other side of this lockdown will look like. Father, I pray this morning that as we open up your word, that we would hear you speak. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with such great hope. They are seeing what has been prophesied come to fruition. God is on the move and he has spoken to the king of Persia and the Israelites are now being encouraged to return to their home. Their time of exile in Babylon is coming to an end and they are given the chance to return to their homeland, to rebuild their temple and to restore their identity and their Jewish faith. There is such great hope for this homecoming. This is what they have waited to see happen for years and years and now their time has finally come. Yet it isn't quite how they thought it would be. Zerubbabel, he achieves what he set out to achieve. Despite efforts made to delay the construction, he re-establishes the temple and they dedicate the temple. And for the most part, people are really happy. They're excited that they have a temple again. But for the elders, the ones who were there and remember the dedication of the first temple, they had distraught that the presence of God hasn't shown up in exactly the same way that it did the first time round. And then Zerubbabel sends away some people who come, um, who live around Jerusalem and have lived there for years and they offer to help with what he's doing but he sends them away telling them they have no place here. And it all just leaves a little bit of a sour tinge to what they've done. Sure, the temple has now been rebuilt, it's been rededicated, but everything is left just a little bit sour. And then Ezra, 
he sets out to achieve what he's been asked to do. He comes to Jerusalem to restore the people's spiritual identity, to teach again the Jewish law and to renew the Israelites' loyalty to their God and to their religion. While he's on his way to Jerusalem, it did take him five months, so he had plenty of time to prepare as much as any man could prepare. He appoints um, leaders, he appoints priests, he rereads the law, makes sure he's all up to date on it. He distributes offerings and sacrifices to be given and made at the temple. And Ezra, he's so, he's so tightly organized that he's just ready to hit the ground running as soon as he arrives. Yet when Ezra arrives, he instead is met with the news that there are Israelites within Jerusalem that are married to foreigners, to non-Israelites. And this, this just tears Ezra apart. In efforts to do what he set out to do, Ezra seeks to purify the people by demanding that those who have foreign wives and children, that they divorce them and those wives and children are sent away. And so the Israelites do this and they're beginning to reshape and resharpen their identity. But once again, there's a sour tinge left to this picture. And Ezra's book, it ends with a lot of weeping. And then there's Nehemiah setting out to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. He goes out with the blessing of King Artaxerxes. Again, this part of the story begins with such hope. And reconstruction begins well, but he of course faces opposition. Leaders of the neighboring tribes ridicule and mock the work that they are doing and they come at them with force, physically attacking the workers that Nehemiah has employed. And so his workers have to be armed and there has to be guards appointed around the city walls to protect them. So though the wall get fin gets finished, it only took them 52 days in the end, they follow the rebuilding with great celebration. Ezra returns to read and teach the law and the people of Israel, they participate in Jewish festivals that they haven't participated in in years. Things were really going well. But then Nehemiah has to head back to Babylon for a visit and then when he returns he discovers things have fallen into quite a disreputable state. All the good work put in by Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah is being neglected and dishonored and it seems that the people of Israel just don't get it. So Nehemiah ends up throwing his hands up in the air, marching around causing a lot of destruction and saying to God, well look at least I tried. And so the temple walls have been rebuilt. The temple itself has been rebuilt. And the people have been re-educated and reawakened to their Jewish heritage. But it all just ends with a violent rampage and extreme frustration. And once again, here's a picture with a sour tinge to it. So, did the prophets get it wrong? Did they proclaim the wrong picture? Because this reality sure doesn't live up to what the prophets spoke of. As the video that we started with suggested, though the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah finish with hope seemingly lost, the books of the Bible that come soon after are the books of wisdom, Psalms and Proverbs, and the books of the prophets which proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God, and they remind us that hope still remains. God is still on the move, and Jesus is on his way.
Interestingly though, if you were to read the Old Testament in chronological order, rather than the thematic order that it is organised into, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell stories of what happened quite late in the peace in the Old Testament, before the eventual arrival of Christ, some 400 years later. Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, they had heard what the prophets had said, what God was promising, and God had laid it on their hearts to return to their homeland and to rebuild the temple and restore their Jewish identity. But, and I don't know if these guys knew it or not, the text doesn't, doesn't tell us, but that wasn't the end of God's plan. What the prophets spoke of didn't end with these guys. Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, they didn't screw up God's plan. And even the Israelites' poor attitude didn't screw up God's plan. God's plan just wasn't yet through. Jesus was on his way. Just like today, God's plan still isn't through. Jesus, again, is on his way. In the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Israelites couldn't stick to what they were being called to because their hearts weren't right. Their hearts were hard and plagued with sin and they had grown accustomed to the lives that they lived in exile, where they allowed their identity as God's people to be mixed up and lost. And rebuilding the temple wasn't going to change that for them. Restoring the walls wasn't going to work either. Even rereading and relearning the laws and religion of their people wasn't enough to renew their hearts. What they needed to renew their hearts was still to come, and the promise of it can be found in Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give to you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and will give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you may follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Jesus was still on his way. Jesus, who would wash away their filth and give them new, tender and responsive hearts so that they could faithfully worship God in the way that they were intended to. And now, here we are, many, many years later, but on the brink of a Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah-style return to our lives and our churches. What will this life look like on the other side of COVID-19? And more specifically, what will our churches look like on the other side of COVID-19? I mentioned at the beginning that we have to consider both the inner life and the outer life. The fear and the anxiety and the panic, they likely won't just disappear. And insecurity around jobs, finances and health will continue to affect people everywhere for months, if not even years to come. Do you know the picture of the iceberg? What we see above the surface may not look like much, may not be so menacing, but what's under the surface might surprise us and it's likely a whole lot more serious. Our way of living is likely to change a little 
Some businesses will close, some will choose to work more from home, some will likely become more online based. So we might have to learn to do some things differently and it could be inconvenient for a while, but it will still be manageable. These are things that will require surface level renewal, like rebuilding the temple, restoring the temple walls, learning the law. Things will start to look good or right again, but we can't ignore what might be going on under the surface in people's inner lives. For the most vulnerable of our societies, going outside may still not be an option for them for time to come. What will we do about their loneliness? For those who've lost loved ones to this virus, what will we do about their grief? For those who've lost jobs and income because of the lockdown, what will we do about their stress and insecurity? For those who work on the front lines of our health sector, who every day will be facing this virus and much more, what will we do about their ongoing anxieties? For those who already were living in poverty before this arrived and have lost even more as a result, what will we do about the affair? It has been said so many times throughout this pandemic, but these certainly are unprecedented times. We didn't know what to expect coming into it and we won't know what to expect coming out of it. But what we can expect is that the effects of this will run deep and that they won't wear off quickly. These are the things that will show as cracks, which will prove that a quick return to normal isn't going to suffice. These are the things that will require heart level rebuilding, restoration and renewal. We are just fortunate that we live in a time where that is available to us. Jesus is the one who rebuilds. We just remembered how he destroyed the temple and then rebuilt it three days later. Jesus is the one who restores. We just remembered how he restored those who were dead back to life. And Jesus is the one who renews. We just remembered how he gave us a new and clean heart through his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is needed by our nation, our communities and our people. Doing the same old, same old isn't going to reach the depths of the hurt and the pain that people will carry with them out of this time. We're going to need something new to address these things. We're going to need some more of Jesus. Just as Nehemiah and Ezra needed Jesus to establish and fulfill the kingdom that they had heard about in prophecy, we need Jesus to establish and fulfill the rebuilding, restoration and renewal in order for our world to recover. So as you consider the question, what will life, what will church look like post COVID-19? Know that the same old, same old isn't going to be enough. And know that we will need Jesus to lead us in the rebuilding, restoration and renewal of our church and of our community. So please pray.
please ask Jesus what he has in store for you and in store for us. Offer yourself to partner with him as he works in this place. And please ask him for eyes to see the lonely, the hurting, the insecure, the anxious, the grieving and the fearful around us. And ask for the courage to reach out to them, to share with them the love and grace of Jesus, the one who rebuilds, restores and renews. And we're sorry for the kid and involvement this week, but that's what happens when you're working at home. It was dinner time for them. They were desperate.